Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we're going to bend time and we're going to rethink what it means to live in the real world. This is an adventure podcast where we talk, among other things, about connecting with nature in order to better connect with ourselves. And today's guest has gone all in on all of the above spending over six years living in the wild in the bush of New Zealand. Friends, get ready to be inspired and wowed. I have with me Miriam Lancewood, an adventurer like you have never heard or seen before. Miriam was born and grew up in a loving home in the Netherlands. After high school, she received a bachelor's degree in physical education, and then something set her off in search of adventure taking her on a journey through Africa, India, and then six years of surviving and thriving in the wild of New Zealand with her husband, Peter. Miriam is an international best-selling author and has written three books, including the one that I read in prep for today's discussion, Woman in the Wilderness. She has a YouTube channel where you can check out all sorts of videos on living in the wild, and I am so excited to talk with Miriam today about her call to adventure and all that she experienced along the way. Miriam, welcome to the campfire. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I am so excited that this was kind of a special connection because uh, I know that you said one of the first things you said to me when we met was that fire was such an important element to you. So Tell you, I, I, I want to. Um, I got the chance to read your entire book. I know the. I know the whole story. I have so many questions for you. I want to bring listeners up to speed, but let's go right to the fire, Miriam. What what was fire to you, and what is fire to you? Yes, indeed, fire. Even as a kid, was a very important thing. Like fire is the like the symbol of adventure. You know, uh, I used to do scouting as a kid, and we had to make a fire and cook on the fire. And I did scouting for like seven or eight years. And in our life in the wilderness, fire was like the our living room. So obviously uh, we didn't have a house or anything, just a tent, but where we uh, lit the fire was where we are gonna sit and spend most of our time. Fire is for me like a little friend. When I'm alone in the forest, I light a fire and I feel not so alone. And uh, you know, it's nice to look at, they call it the, um, the bush television, right? You can always look <laughs> at the fire. The bush Something television. Something is moving. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so it's always nice. And it inspires people to talk honestly about themselves, I believe, because we met other hunters in the bush. We sit around a fire and all these stories come out, you know, very honest and personal stories. And I think it's partly the fire that, uh, and they don't have to look at each other. So we <laughs> look at a fire and tell the story. And uh, I think that is what ignites all those stories. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What a great explanation of, you know, what we're trying to do here. This is, this is our version of the campfire. Um, you had so many 
experiences around the fire. And uh, I just, you know, I told you as we were getting started here, I just loved, loved, loved this book. I recommend it to anybody that wants to hear more about Miriam's story because I really felt like I was there with you guys. It was just so detailed and just described every moment uh, on your trip. It was really awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah so for listeners, um, could you could you just give us an overview of of let's talk about the New Zealand piece. What 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 is it that you and Peter did and how did this whole thing come to be? Oh yeah, Peter and I decided to leave civilization in 2010. And we wanted initially only four seasons, only one year survive on hunting and gathering in the wilderness of New Zealand in the Southern Alps, high up the mountains, um, just to see if we could do it and to learn these survival skills. Uh, but after one year, we did not want to come back to town. So in, this, in the end, we spent seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand and always nomadic. And we slept in a tent and we roamed around like nomads and we cooked in a fire. You did. You did. And that was just, that was a very, very condensed version of yeah. a very, <laughs> a very epic journey. And I just, I felt like it was so interesting because like you guys, you did set out for a year and it was like one season at a time. In fact, the way the book is written, you, you talk about each season in that first yeah. year, but then it seemed like the universe just sort of showed up for you because like yeah these opportunities to continue kept coming up for you. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about that. Like how does, how does four seasons turn into seven years? Yes, indeed. We decided not to plan too much because if you plan too much, like say you're going to go to place A, then stay in a hotel and then you're going to do this and the next thing, something might happen along the way. Someone might invite you, right? Someone might have an idea. And then you have to say no because you already booked your hotel. So in that, you know, the little allegory stands for our lives. So we try not to plan too much and leave things to spontaneous, um, just random meetings. And that worked every time. So uh, we would meet someone in the bush and he would say, hey, I've got a little hut in the middle of an Abel Tasman National Park. That's amazing in itself. And then he would say, oh, it's just um, sitting there empty. Why don't you live there for, some, for a little bit? You can even grow a garden. So that's what we did. And every time we met another person who led us to another place. Yeah. And it, and it seemed like a lot, of, a lot of the opportunities showed up for you after a segment was over and it showed up in your email. Yes, indeed. Technology is really great to use that way. So we set off into the wilderness without any technology. Um, no cell phone, no emergency beacon. We were just going to be very careful, according to Peter. It worked. And no clock even. But when we came out after, well, as much as maybe four months, I go to an internet cafe and check my email. And then, indeed, there would be an email waiting for us. I mean, literally waiting like, hey, we have an opportunity for you that, yeah. that helps you set out into the next year. <laughs> yeah. Really, really incredible. Okay, so there is so much that I want to dig into in terms of the details of, of things that happened to you guys. Um, before we go there, I kind of want to talk a little bit about that call to adventure. So you make it very clear in, in the beginning of your book that you were born in a very loving home in the Netherlands, and you set off after 
college to Zimbabwe. And so I want to dig into that because it seems like leaving home, leaving this great place, leaving the Netherlands and going to Africa, like there had to be something that set you off on this life of adventure. Do you remember what that was? Yeah. So my problem was that my home was too loving, believe it or not. So I was always homesick. I felt very ill at ease in any other place but my home and my family. I think that's lovely. Yes, it is. But you have to fly out one day, right? And when you're 18, you're not supposed to like to sit next to your mummy and daddy. (laughs) So I thought, how am I going to overcome this? And I also liked um, the sound of Africa and doing volunteer work and, you know, doing the good work. And I thought I go, I have to go and um, detach myself from my family. Otherwise, it, it is some kind of a prison, a very loving prison, but nevertheless a prison. So I decided to just uh, jump in the deep side and um, uh, throw myself in there, which was very traumatic. <laughs> Yeah. It was, um, um, well, not a positive experience, not at all. I felt very um, alone, isolated, even depressed in Africa. But as the English saying goes, you can never come home again. So after a year in Zimbabwe, I came home and I thought, oh, have I cried for this a whole year? You know, nothing had changed. Yet I had completely changed. And at that time, I felt completely free and I thought, right, now I can enjoy myself. And that's when I decided to go to India. Mm. So sometimes something so good as a loving family can be at the same time a trap that I had this fear of going anywhere else. I just want to be at home. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, but it's not good at the same time. So I'm almost sensing that you had this like strong attachment that you felt like was holding you back somehow. Yeah, indeed. And with that goes fear because I knew I could see that everywhere outside my home, it wasn't nice. (laughs) The world is dark and harsh compared to my home. So, yeah, that's a problem. And I think I wasn't the only one. But, yeah, to get out of that loving home is very hard and painful. And uh, even for my parents, too. They saw me suffering for a year. (laughs) And and you felt you, you needed to get out and experience that darkness? No. Not at all, but I need to get out. <laughs> I didn't want to sit at home the rest of my life. No, I would feel as a failure if I had done that. Yeah. And I'm not judging people who don't, who live their whole life with their parents. Yeah. Not at all. But I would have felt um, imprisoned by it. Yeah. Because I would, did not overcome my fear. I guess that's what yeah. it is. So a year in a year in Africa. I'm curious, how did that? How did the Africa opportunity appear for you? Because you've had so many opportunities that have just appeared for you. How did that one show up? Oh, just look on the internet, volunteer work, and then you find all sorts of projects. A lot of them you have to pay for, which is ridiculous. Hmm. But uh, this one was free at least, and I uh, just worked for a year as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. they were happy to have me, and um, yeah, so I went. So you went looking for that one. Went to Africa for a year. Came home. Decided I need to go to India. How did how did that one happen? My sister went to India and she said, it's a wonderful country. It's cheap. You can afford everything. You can afford eating in restaurants, going to hotels. Uh, People are very friendly. It's uh, completely safe. And I said, well, that sounds good, especially after Africa. So, um, yeah, I went there. I had a great time. I traveled for five months on my own before I met Peter. And that's the day uh, my life changed. 
The day your life changed. So let's talk about that. Tell me about the day your life changed. It was the 22nd of January, 2006, so almost 18 years ago. And um, yeah, he was a university professor from New Zealand. And he was 30 years older than I was. So I was 22 and he was 52. Had I met him in Holland, I would have said he's way too old. But you know, in India, you can do anything. And I felt very free. And I thought, okay, we can travel together. I can learn a lot from this man. And um, I was looking for a man to go um, into the Himalayas with. And he was looking for someone to travel in the Himalayas with. So that was perfect. And so we did that. And no plans like to marry or to stay together forever, also because of the age difference. Mm -hmm. And I think had he been my age, I would have thought, oh, I don't want to be forever with one man. Yeah. You know, because then your future is already laid out. That's another prison. So the very age difference actually helped me to say, okay, we t just take it as it comes. And I think that's a secret for any relationship, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Not project into the future and don't take each other for granted. Yeah. Well, you, you both have become masters of living one day at a time and one foot in front of the other, which is really amazing. So, um, so let's fast forward. So how did you guys get to New Zealand? How did, how did that happen? We traveled overland mostly, um, through, um, Southeast Asia and, um, Papua New Guinea, even where he nearly died of malaria. Um, because Peter is always living on the edge. If he doesn't take the risks, he doesn't feel alive. So that's another reason to don't take anything for granted because life can be over any time if you live on the edge. And uh, yeah, we slowly came to New Zealand, his home country. And I worked for a year as a teacher to get residency. And uh, at that time, we're thinking like, we want to do something extraordinary, something different, maybe an expedition. And that's how the idea was born to live in the wilderness, like um, nomadic people like our ancestors and also like the sadhus whom we met in India because they take pride into having nothing. And so you only have that notion, well, from Westerners, um, when you grow up with everything because everything is not so exciting anymore. <laughs> How about nothing? Yeah. <laughs> so um, we also thought like nothing is better. Less is better. So... Um, we decided to give away the belongings, not that we had much, and um, yeah, go without technology and see how we could survive with even less. Less. If we see a dependency, we try to get rid of it. What, what was that? I'm, I, I'd love to be like, I felt like I was there with you guys in the book, but the conversations like leading up to New Zealand and getting to that point where you guys are deciding we're going to do this. What were those conversations like? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Um, yeah, we both wanted to live in the wilderness, for sure. Uh, it wasn't like I had to convince him, you know. Um, and we decided, like, oh, we want to live off hunting. So I said, oh, I'd like to learn how to hunt with a bow and arrow. So I started practicing on a target. And um, then we set out to live off hunting. And that was a lot more hard than I could ever imagine. Because mm. it's all right to shoot a couple of arrows on a target. Hunting is a totally different matter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was very hard. But, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, we're pretty similar in opinions and ideas about the future. Hey, everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, 
buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and wanna help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. So I love that. That's a great segue because you started talking about hunting. And I, I think that, you know, it's one thing to go on a camping trip for a week in the wilderness and, you know, have everything you need, but you guys lived there and you made it your home. And so hunting was something that became a survival skill that you had to acquire in order to survive in the bush. And yeah. um, I, I, I loved the way that you describe it in the book. Before you started hunting, you were a vegetarian. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I thought, um, I at that time, I always thought, because my mum never uh, cooked meat, so we were all vegetarian. And I always said, like, no animal have to, has to die for me, you know. I didn't uh, want to inflict that cruelty. Um, but I thought, if we're going to survive, we need to find ways. And there is just not so much to eat. Had we gone live in a wilderness here in Europe, because at the moment I am in Bulgaria, Mm-hmm. It's a different different place. There's a lot of nuts and fruits and everything to eat. Not in New Zealand in the mountains. There's hardly anything to eat. If you don't eat meat, you die. Because there are only a few berries, but only in February, March. And it's just not that much to eat. Unless you live in the coast. That's where the indigenous people, the Maori, used to live. Uh, but of course, right now, the roads are on the coast and all the towns are on the coast. So there's no wilderness there. So I'm wondering, like, just for listeners... I would love to hear this progression of how you developed the skills and we can talk about hunting, but, you know, born in the Netherlands, you know, you went through this whole kind of life journey, like you weren't handed these skills. These were things that you had to learn as you went. Right. So I wonder if you could kind of like, and let's talk about hunting as a, as a starter, like, can you kind of take us through that progression of, of, of what learning that was like and, you know, just kind of going through that place where you're vegetarian to now all of a sudden you're an expert. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's a hard um, road. It takes very, very long to learn such a skill. Luckily, right in the beginning, I said, okay, in 10 years, I might be a good hunter. So that's a good start because I expected some difficulty. But um, first of all, with a bow and arrow, wild goats are the best animals to go Mm -hmm. and hunt for. Because an, a rabbit is so small, it's a yeah. small target, right? And wild goats, um, they're not so shy. So they would often stand there and look at you at about 50 meters. It was absolutely perfect. And uh, good meat too, very tasty. We make them into curries. So I was looking for wild goats. I was after them and I thought, okay, um, they will be and sort of everywhere and anywhere, right? Not so. They are in some valleys and not in other valleys. So only after the first winter, I learned to talk to hunters of, okay, where are actually the goats? And I said, oh, not at all here, in the wrong place. <laughs> here we have possums. But in some valleys, you know, eight valleys towards the west, that's where the goats are. Oh, no wonder I didn't see them. You know, so you have to learn from other hunters. Very important. Talk to one another. Yes, so often, even when I did see goats, I would fire arrows and would miss them. And um, it's just very, very difficult with a bow and arrow. 
And after two years, I switched to a rifle and suddenly that was so easy because mm-hmm. I already learned how to hunt, how to stalk, how to be quiet, how to get close. And, um, and then it's just a matter of firing. And a bullet would kill an animal so much quicker than an arrow. So I thought, actually, uh, bullets are much more humane. Yeah. Yeah, whereas I had this romantic Robin Hood idea that I would um, uh, hunt with bow and arrow. And if my arrows are finished, I will make a new one, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's not so easy either. It's very, very hard to make an arrow that flies straight. And uh, and what are you going to use as a tip, for instance? It it also seems like the way that you learn, like starting with a bow and arrow, it just, it seemed like a very natural progression. Like I completely, that makes complete sense that the, the rifle would be more humane, but to learn the skill with yeah. such a primitive tool. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It made, uh, made me a good hunter for sure. I'm glad I did it. Yeah. So do you remember, there were some great stories in the book. Do you remember like the first couple of experiences of actually firing the bow and arrow and and striking an animal? Yes, indeed. Well, of course, my very first one, Mm -hmm. it was very traumatic. There was this little kid and the the two parents, goats I'm talking about, and um, I shot the, the little one. And the parents, they must have understood that that was it, you know, that um, I was not after them. And it was sort of a very, very quiet scene that seemed to go on forever. That this, this mother goat and father goat looked at me like, what has just happened? You know, and the process even of, um, of grief or something, you know, and uh, disbelief. And, you know, so, so human in some ways. And I just stood there sort of uh, helpless, like, what am I supposed to do now? And for my feeling, this went on for like 10 minutes. It can't have been. But... But, a lot, but it was interesting that the parents understood that I wasn't going to kill them, mm. even though I just killed a kid. Yeah. Anyway, um, this is the horn of that little goat that I shot. And for me, it means the cycle of living and dying. Because me too, of course, I am an animal. And one day I will also die, hopefully not by the hands of a hunter. But um, life will end with death. And then we well, that's part of the whole life cycle. So yeah, that's why I uh, put it around my neck. Yeah. So for listeners um, that might not be watching the video, you've got the the goat's horn. Um, you bored a hole in it and you wear it around your neck as as a yeah. memory. That's that's really cool. So what were those feelings like for you? And and how did those like how did that progress over time as a hunter? I mean, I'm sure that like th- it was a really probably a pretty emotional experience for you that first yeah. time. Yes, indeed. I was also, I was so happy because after six months, I finally uh, found and killed my first goat. So I was very relieved, you know, I finally succeeded. And, but at the same time, it's just so horrible to kill a beautiful, innocent goat. It's totally innocent. And why was I I doing this? Just so that we can play little Robin Hood in the bush? (laughs) You know, it's, um, it seems also so ludicrous at the same time. And a surprise, like, what am I doing here? But yeah, at the same time, it's also felt so real. That's what I thought, wow, this is so real. I don't know why those words came to mind, but yeah, this is reality. Completely understand that. And we're going to talk about that, that idea of reality. So how has that sort of connection with animals, um, both as, you know, creatures of the planet, creatures of the universe, but also 
you know, as a food source, like how has that changed for you? And, and even like in the six years that you were out there, how, how did those feelings sort of change inside of you or did they? Um, yeah, a lot. I think by looking for them so, so many hours, I got to know them really well. I know exactly where the goat likes to sleep, where it likes to eat, where it likes to sit, rest, mate, graze. You know, I know all about them. I know them inside out and also the hare and the deer and the pig. And so you get to know them really well, much more than I would ever been as a vegetarian. If I look back now in Holland, I had nothing to do with animals, nothing, yeah. not once. I don't, don't see them. <laughs> Uh, nothing to do with them. So uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a strange way of getting to know animals. Yeah, you get a lot of respect. But as some people will say, well, if you have that much respect, don't bloody kill them. Yeah, I understand that. But yeah, that's what we set out to do, you know, survive in the wilderness. One thing that struck me, walking through those mountains, and often we would see chamois or, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the mountain goats or the tar goats. And I will not shoot them because they're too far away. But it's amazing to see them. And I think, wow, they are a picture of health. They can run so fast. They're so strong. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. The way they move is amazing. Now, why do humans seem to be so sick? The way, <laughs> and the way us humans walk and move and behave and eat and, and talk, everything seems to be so, like, sickly almost. And that's when I thought, like, we can be like an animal. We are, in fact, an animal, of course. We are some sort of ape. And I want to be completely healthy. Why shouldn't I? It's the most natural thing to be. Yeah. So it's a great inspiration. Our heroes. I love this so much. So um, as I do want to ask you, like, as, as a food source, you ate a lot of interesting things that so many of us in the West would never even think about. Like, you know, you guys were making stews with possum. Um, you made clothes out of possum. I'm curious, like what that progression was like for you. Was it, you know, was it like, was it easy to, to dive into eating foods that you'd never eat before and especially foods that you had to kill and prepare? Um, what was that like? Well, on the day that we set off to live in the wilderness, it was like we left that other world behind. We had no contact, no cell phone, nothing, right? I wrote letters to my family, but I never received anything back, mm -hmm. of course. So it was like, okay, I'm a different person now. And this person is not going to feel nauseous when gutting an animal. <laughs> this person is just going to deal with it. I'm going to deal with anything that comes my way. So yeah, all that dealing with animal, animal skin and how to learn that, it's all very hard. Okay, this is what we set out to do. So I'm going to learn that. And it will take a long time. We've got plenty of time. That's one thing we had plenty of, an ocean of time. So I may as well learn these skills. And um, yeah, it was hard. Uh, but some things were also surprising, like brain. The best thing in the world is brain, eating brain. It's the texture of marshmallows. It's uh, so <laughs> nutritious. It's nice and fatty. It's just fantastic. Yeah, but I, I would never have thought. It's so interesting. I you just I just kind of want to reflect back what you said because you essentially just let go of any conditioning that you had of being the person that you were before you stepped into the bush and it was like you were yeah. just stepping into the bush with just like completely fresh wide open mind. Yes, indeed. And it's quite hard. Yeah. Like uh I'm so conditioned to not get my clothes dirty, for instance, because my mummy told me to. 
And so I have to always be careful not to get dirty. And after a while, I'm thinking, well, do I want to be a person who's always paranoid about not getting dirty? <laughs> no, I don't want to be like that kind of person. I want to be a bit more, you know, relaxed. And so, yeah, you do get to know yourself really well out there. Miriam, how do you do that? How do you just let go of conditioning? I think, um, you know, does is it is does the environment, does nature just make it easy? Or like, did you have to be intentional about that? Yeah, well, necessity is a good one. So I have to deal with certain things. Otherwise, we, for example, we don't eat. Or uh, how do we get supplies up the hill? Well, we've got to carry it. Yeah, it's heavy. But yeah, what else are we going to do? <laughs> Can't give up. Um, so yeah, necessity. But also, we have no stress in the wilderness because there's not nothing to compare yourself with. So a lot of stress comes with comparison, right? It's like some sort of race. I see society as a race. And you're always comparing with, oh, he's going faster than I am, right? Oh, there is nothing. There's nothing to compare yourself with. No social media, nothing. And no mirrors <laughs> to look in the mirror all the time to see how good you're not looking. <laughs> uh, all of these things. So there's no stress. And so there is more clarity of the mind. And so if something comes up, you think, hey, that's interesting. I see a little bit of conditioning here. Like I get irritated with, P with Peter sometimes. I get irritated. He should not say certain things. Then I think, hey, would, am I irritated or would my father be irritated by this? Important question. So I often think, hey, this is, I am acting the way my parents do, not me. And I have not a choice. Shall I, shall I copy their behavior or shall I choose to be a new person? And for that, you need to have time for contemplation. And a lot of people don't have that time. So, yeah, I would recommend people go and sit by yourself for a month in the forest and mm -hmm. see what comes out. So you just said time. And that was something I really want to spend a little bit of time with here with you today, um, because yeah. that was a, a pretty big principle within your book. It's um, inherent in there that time changed the concept of time changed for you and i wonder if you could just talk about that and, and help us and help the listeners help me understand like that how that concept of time changed for you in the time that you were in the wilderness yeah that's right we had to slow down of course then the rhythm of nature is much slower than our mind especially the mind that sits behind a computer that seems to be very hyperactive so it took about two or three weeks to slow down. And in that time, we had to go through boredom. So boredom, deep boredom, is a prerequisite for slowing down. Because if you try to avoid boredom, boredom you keep busy, right? The more busy you keep, the more sped up you will, you will um, remain. So we had to slow down. And in that time, we had to learn, as Peter said, now you have to learn the art of doing nothing. And reading is something, meditating is something, uh, just absolutely nothing. That's, yeah, how often do we do that? Even sleeping is something. Yeah, so um, then I, for us, everything was like an experiment. So we, our meta question was, what will happen to body and mind when living far away from civilization? And everything that came up was, hey, this is interesting. This is another part of our research. We were our own guinea pigs. <laughs> And if you don't see it that way, then you are a victim. And if you see it as a, as a research, then everything is interesting. Yeah, so an important difference. But to go back to time, um, 
the Greek invented this word is that is Kairos time. Yeah. And Kronos time. So right now we know it is um, Wednesday, Wednesday, 11 o'clock or whatever. And, um, and tomorrow is Thursday and tomorrow I'm going to do this and every Friday I'll do this. And in Saturday's weekend, all that, right? That's Kronos time, completely planned. And we take a kind of security out of that. Like imagine if that all falls away, that is nothing planned. A lot of people would feel insecure. Well, that's how we felt. So we moved into the wilderness and we felt like, oh, the, the calendar feels like completely blank. Like our future is one big white sheet. Very strange feeling, but also very wonderful. Yeah. And that's one thing that I am have become very attached to. So now, if I have to do a little job for a few weeks, then I, I feel like being back in prison, in the prison <laughs> of time, the Kronos time. Yeah, I like the Kairos time, but the Greek called is completely, yeah, maybe a little bit to compare like the flow. People call that a flow. Uh-huh. So one minute might feel like one hour or really a timeless thing. And that's the same in the wilderness. It feels like timeless. One afternoon feels a week. So uh, our last season that we did was in 2021 in New Zealand a couple of years ago. And those four months really felt like four years. It's just amazingly long. So if you want to extend your life, go and live in the wilderness. I love it. So I, I have to uh, share one of the stories that you told in your book that I just loved was, I, I think it was probably within the first week or first month for sure, but you guys arrived at a hut. Um, yeah. There's huts all throughout New Zealand that you guys were able to um, to to use for shelter and and um, and one of the, the this first hut that you guys arrived at, um, if I recall, it was really filthy, and yep. you you felt like when you got there you needed to clean and you had sort of like this list and you were like doing yep. doing doing, and I think mm-hmm. I think Peter maybe said like what are you doing Why don't you sit down Why don't you relax And it was like you had to get out that sort of like that need to just always be doing 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 and it was almost like it was almost like this withdrawal. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I love yeah. that story so much. Yeah. So, so how long did it take to sort of get through that withdrawal? Yeah, it took about uh, three weeks. But it's almost as though our consciousness is wired to doing. And the scary thing is, it doesn't even matter what it is. Yeah. Like a friend who came to visit us, he said, "Oh, I really feel the same as what you experienced. I feel like ha- I have to do something." She said, "Even carrying a rock from A to B and back to A." Sounds ridiculous, but that's what I feel is more purposeful than just sitting here and doing nothing. How crazy is that? So that's our consciousness. We have to be doing something. So you said meditating is doing something, right? What 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 is doing nothing? <laughs> nothing. Just sit there. Uh, just look at the um, well. Look at anything. Look at the river, or look at the fire, or well. I guess you're always doing something. Then you would say, well, then you're looking at something. Yeah, observing the beauty. Yeah. yeah, as little as possible. Yeah, because there's not much to do in the wilderness. So I go hunting. Okay, that's done. Uh, get the firewood. Yeah, that's all done. Um, and now what? So there's not much to do. Make a fire. Make some tea. Yeah, exactly. So we do that. Yeah, then lots of cups of tea. Yeah. And I also found one thing coming back to civilization is that, one, how busy people are, and two, how inefficient people are. So the more busy you seem to be, the more inefficient. Yeah. 
Yeah. So out in the wilderness, we do a lot of nothing. But if we have to do something like get everything ready because a storm is coming, well, we can work fast. Yeah, so fun. So um, one thing I think towards the end of your trip, with, with regards to time, I'm, I'm reading um, a section of the end of your trip and you guys came upon a traveler. The traveler, you guys met up and he said to you, I'm quoting from your book, oh, I wish we could have more time, but we've got to get back to work, back to the real world. And then you said, but this is the real world. Yeah. Unbelievable. How could he get that. it that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So he had to get back to the real world. You're living yeah. in the real world. I just wondered if you could touch on that for a minute. Yes, indeed. How could he call the natural world the not real world? Surely he got the wrong way around. So we come from this earth, you know, our ancestors, we we're born in this earth and all what humans made, it's real, of course, but um, not what sustains us, us humanity, I mean. Yeah. So I think that's exactly the problem with humanity. We should reconnect with the earth we once came from, the earth we called our home. Um, and with that, our instincts. So all we do is teaching children to ignore instincts and then go by knowledge and by, uh, you know, cultural things and the behavior. But what would happen if we go back to those instincts? I think we'll be happier people. Yeah. And there, um, so just to kind of expand on that, one of the, one of the cool parts of this book was you, you put in here, um, some letters that you wrote to, I think your sister, Sophie, is that right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And um, I loved reading the letters to Sophie. They were full of wisdom. But one of the letters, um, I just something that struck me in your book, you said, the promise of becoming wealthy isn't so exciting anymore. I know what it is like to have the security of a job and living in a house. I know the competitive world where people fight themselves up the ladder for power and status. I know the world where pleasure becomes the meaning of life. What I don't know, though, and I think I should, is the natural world we were all born in. And then you go on to tell the story of Gilgamesh. And that story, I, I think maybe Peter talked to you about this story of Gilgamesh. But yeah. I love that story so much. And that's another one I wish um, if you would tell us a little bit about for listeners. Could you tell us about the story of Gilgamesh and how that relates to what you guys were doing out in the wilderness? Yes, the whole story of Gilgamesh is trying to become, uh, to have for a life forever, so to fight death. And so this is the first story of all times. I think it's the first one ever written. And he wanted to become immortal. And so he found out the quest of Gilgamesh is to how do we become immortal? And then he cut down the forest because the forest was also a symbol of um, you know, the, um, the seasons in the summer becomes autumn and all that. Okay, cut it all down. I mean, not reminded of that. And so, and I think that's precisely our quest of humanity, how we become immortal. And I think the whole um, development of AI is to become one with a robot who will not die. So that's, again, the whole Gilgamesh quest, quest to, um, to overcome death. But you only have death when you're living in time, the Kronos time. So if you live with tomorrow is Thursday and then it's Friday and next year I'm going to go on a holiday, then indeed in the end of that 
highway, so to say, is a stop called death. And you can already see down the road, down the rails, you know, like a train rails. Yeah, so it's very, very sad because that um, instills a lot of fear. So if you live in Kairos time, death, death does not exist. It only exists when it actually happens. And then you don't know because you are gone, right? And and so that part of the story of Gilgamesh that you guys talked about was that uh, he he builds these walls, right? He creates this these cities, and the oh, yeah. walls mm-hmm. essentially represent the disconnection between like this civilization that we've created and the wild. Yeah, yes, right? indeed. I guess and build the want... first city. Yeah, he yes. built the first city called um, Uruk, right? Yeah. And so that's what we done too. We build our city, we build our houses, and we feel safe inside. But after a while, we think like, uh, are we missing something? Yeah, life. So I'm wondering, is it possible inside those walls to live in Kairos time? Or do you have to go out into the wild to do it? Hey, that's a good question. (laughs) I don't know. I'm tempted to say, no, you can't. Kairos is outside, but I don't know. Yeah, but you found it outside. You found it in the wild. Yeah, yeah, I did. But I think musicians, maybe, who spend a fantastic time behind the piano, they, they, they experience Kairos time, maybe, and they would argue otherwise. I don't know. Miriam, in this whole journey, there's so much more we could talk about. And again, I encourage people to read your book because it's just, it's so epic. There was so much learning. There's so many skills that you had to, uh, to master, um, to be out there. I mean, all the weather that you experienced, um, but I'm curious, in, in that time and when you look back to the person that you were before you left for Africa and the person that you are today, like what, what change has happened in you? I think I found my inner strength by um, developing something to find courage that is not based on comparison. You cannot find inner strength through comparison by being better than anyone else because there will always be someone better, right? And so that makes you just more nervous. So to find uh, confidence that is not based on comparison, that is the key. And you can do that by um, learning some skills and doing something. So to find out, you know, do something remarkable and you've done that. And so that's what I feel like I've done. Yes, I know that I lived seven years in the wilderness of New Zealand. No one can tell me otherwise. I know I've done it. And just that in itself uh, gives me a lot of confidence. Yeah. Just, you know, the rite of passage, so to say. Yeah. And I, I also wanted to ask you, like, there we can learn and we can develop skills and we can, you know, uh, gain wisdom through books and reading and studying, but we can also gain it through that direct experience. And I'm curious for you, like, was there a blend? Like, th- this book is full of wisdom. And I, I guess part of what I want to know is, is that all wisdom that came out of direct experience, how much was it, was there study involved? I think you guys did some reading while you were out there as well. I was just curious on the balance there. Yeah, I thought, and I'll do the same with my YouTube shorts these days, to only tell that I, the things that I really experienced myself, because only that sort of comes across. Otherwise, you know, it goes one year in, other year out, I think. And also, uh, everything I wrote in the book is my own experience and my own wisdom, not that I borrowed from other people. Because otherwise, they may as well read for themselves, you know, in the Lao Tzu or in the I Ching or whatever. So, um, no, I didn't want to copy anything. So, yes, everything that we found out, I put down. Yeah. 
which is yeah. a very small selection. Yeah. Well, so Peter, um, Peter was an academic, right? Earlier yes, in his life, right? So I guess, how did, um, is there a balance of like, is there value in the, in the, in the, in the academic learning that, that, that comes together with the direct experience? Yes, indeed. He used to be a university professor. Mm-hmm. He looked out of the window and thought, I want to be out there in the mountains. What am I doing here? And he gave a say goodbye party. And he said to his colleagues, you got to lift this stuff, not just write about it. <laughs> and those were his last words. And then he left. And so that's exactly it. You can write about it, but it doesn't mean that you understand them. Right? And so you've got to live all those questions, like what happens to body and mind? You've got to live it, experience it. And then you, you know for sure. Yeah. Miriam, I have to ask before we, before we kind of wrap up here, does fear play a role in your life? Um, yes, I think so. Um, there's always fear. In the moment, we are living in Bulgaria and we see every day footprints of bears. And lots of stories of bear attacks and, you know, people get, um, get hassled or, you know, everyone is afraid. And I still have to go out there and walk around and uh, I'm afraid. But I think, well, I'm not going to sit inside all the time. I have to go out there. So, um, yes, fear is always, is always there, but you have to face it. Because I think um, the unknown has a barrier and that barrier is fear. So if you... Because we're conditioned out of the unknown by fear, right? We see fear and we go backwards, back where we came from. So we have to overcome that fear in order to go into the unknown. And the unknown is, of course, the freedom. How do you deal with it? How do you overcome fear? Well, by seeing that I want freedom and I have to go through it. And often it's nowhere near as bad as I thought. So before we set out to live in the wilderness, I was terrified of getting lost. You know, lost. I go hunting. I don't know where I am. I get lost. I get hypothermia. I die. That was my idea. It never happened. It's not even possible to get lost. You have huge river valleys. And of course, you find your way back. It's not like, you know, flat uh, Stewart Islands, very flat. And, you know, that's where you get lost. Or Australia, but not New Zealand. So a lot of fears are not even uh, realistic. Yeah. It almost goes back to what you were saying before. Like when you have the experience, you build the confidence and the confidence helps the fear go away. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. You have to face it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As I said, often it's not even realistic. It's not there. You didn't need to be afraid of it. Imagine that you spent 30 years being afraid of something and didn't need to be. (laughs) There's there's more of that wisdom right there. I love that. (laughs) Miriam. So this podcast at the beginning, we say this, uh, it's about ordinary people and their extraordinary stories of adventure. Do you consider yourself to be an ordinary person? Yeah, totally ordinary. Yeah. So I look at myself thinking, ah, all of humanity is that. So I see fears and I think, oh, I'm not the only one. No, I'm not. Nothing special in my fear. So a lot of sorrow, I think, is because we think we're the only one and no one can understand us. Well, I think everyone can understand you. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone got the same. Everyone got fears and insecurity and nervousness and anxiety and all that. Yeah, you don't keep it a secret. Everyone got the same secret. So, um, yeah, I consider myself totally ordinary, but uh, indeed um, having quite a different life, at least since I met Peter. Yeah. 
for sure. So with that, what advice do you have for people that listen to this podcast are incredibly inspired by, by your story, but maybe they think like, oh, I could never do that. Or, you know, that's too extreme. What advice would you have for those people? Yeah, think of something. So use your creativity to think of a remarkable thing to do. Not for seven years, maybe just one summer. And do you plan that properly? Because if you don't plan things properly, you have to be really organized. If you don't, you're going to die. So uh, that's what we did too. People think, oh, it's all relaxed in a bush. Yeah, but we were very organized. So uh, you do that. Um, plan something just for the summer. It doesn't matter what it is, even if it's a long walk, maybe. There are long walkways um, all over the world. And uh, you try and do that. If you don't want to go alone, find someone else. But do something. And then you'll be a different person at the end. And you'll be proud of yourself. And that's just an amazing feeling to be really proud of what you did. Oh, I agree. I, I just love that so much. What's next for you? Um, well, with the authors of Wilder Journeys, we haven't talked about that yet, but that's another book I helped editing with Laurie King. With those authors, which are all adventurous people and have done many expeditions, I thought I want to go on an expedition with those people because they're really experienced. Awesome. And so I go with um, at least a couple of them to the Himalayas in August, and we're going to climb three passes over 5,000 meters. And without a porter and without a guide, we're going to do it all ourselves. And um, yeah, so I go on a journey through the mountains and see what we see. Wow, that's going to be amazing. I can't wait to catch up with you on that. Miriam, your story is incredible. And at some point, Hollywood's going to be reaching out to you because they're going to want to make a movie about you. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, they're going to. I, I know it. And I want to know when they do, who's going to be the Hollywood actress that's going to play you in your movie? Only people I know is Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Brad Pitt. So I guess they're going to be those two. <laughs> I mean, those are the only two. So, so those yeah. are who's going to play you. I have to tell yeah. you, like the whole time I was reading the book, and, and this is the, the great thing about epic adventurers like you, you're out in the yeah. wilderness. You're not watching TV. You're not watching movies. Like that's the furthest yeah. thing from your concern. And that's the, it's such, a, it's such an <laughs> awesome thing. So I always love that answer. Um, when they do make this movie, what's the movie going to be called? Um, I like titles that immediately tells you what the story is about. So that's what I got for my book, Woman in the Wilderness. You know, I the like title it. says itself, nothing to guess. <laughs> it's all go. obvious. Yeah, I like obvious things. So Woman. yeah, Woman in the Wilderness. Woman in the Wilderness. So yeah. Miriam, you've got three books. Um, Wilder Journeys is out now, right? Yeah, since March. Yeah, also in the US. Yep. And so if, um, if people want to learn more about you, find out about you, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can look on my website, miriamlanswood.com or look on the internet, just type in Miriam Lanswood. You've got loads of interviews and shorts and little videos that I'll be making in the winter when it was boring and nothing to do here. So that's Miriam Lanswood in the wild. I call it is my handle. Yeah. Awesome. That's it. No Instagram or, um, Facebook. Yeah. Miriam, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for inspiring our listeners. I, I hope you'll just keep adventuring as you have. And uh, we're going to continue to check back in with you um, and follow your journey because it's, 
it's just incredibly inspiring. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Miriam's story has encouraged you to listen to that voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Miriam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure.